Hello and welcome to the Steve Poos Benson Podcast. It's good to have you here with, today with me. Uh, last week we talked about ambition and I want to carry on the conversation today about ambition. I have a special guest with me. I have my daughter Kelsey, somebody who is full of ambition. Actually, each one of my kids are ambitious people and I'll probably introduce you to them throughout the uh, duration of the podcast. But today I wanted you to, to, to meet Kelsey because she uh, last September went on a great trek through Nepal, which is a great expression of her ambition. So what I want to invite you to do is uh, put in your AirPods, put on some headphones, go for a walk, walk the dog, do the dishes, clean the house, sit in an easy chair, sit back, but listen to this great interview with my daughter, Kelsey. Kelsey, thank you for joining me. Oh, by the way, I got to tell you, we are about as low tech as I know how to get. I'm sitting here in my basement with my snowball microphone, and I have the an extended phone from my phone speaker up against the microphone. So I, we're trying to maintain social distance with the, uh, with the interview. Kelsey's at her house on her phone. So phone-to-phone interview. So Kelsey, how are you tonight? I'm good. Happy to be here. Cool. So, Kelsey, do a little bit of introduction to about yourself. Uh, who are you? What do you do? Your life. Give us a brief rundown on your life. All right. Well, I'm Kelsey. I am a physical therapist at St. Anthony's Hospital. Um, I work in acute care and intensive care units, specifically on the neuro and trauma units, mostly. Um I spend a lot of my free time in the great outdoors with my boyfriend and dogs. Who are your dogs' names? Uh, Glacier and Ellie. And what kind of dogs are they? They're two Australian Shepherds. Aussie Shepherds. And what breed is your boyfriend? Uh, the perfect breed. (laughs) And his name is? His name is Kyle. Oh, very cool. Another Kyle in the family. I love it. Well, let's dive in, Kelsey. You went to a, to Nepal this past September. Why did you go to Nepal? Why Nepal? Um, that's, a, that's a loaded question. I have always had a bucket list, and for some reason, Nepal has always been on that list. I'm a person of the outdoors, and... I love big mountains, and I think I was always drawn to Nepal because they are the biggest mountains. The Himalayas are the biggest. Uh, As you all know, they're home to Everest and um, a a lot of other huge mountaineering adventures. So it was always a big dream of mine to go there. How long did it take you to prepare for the trip? I think it took me from start to finish around six months. Six months? Did you go with a specific company? I did. Um, I did a lot of research because I was traveling solo. Um, I had it whittled down to three, and there was this one company that had glowing reviews, and they were going to make me feel the most safe, so I went with them. So now you made Dad, your mom and Dad nuts because you wanted to go solo. Why solo? That's also a loaded question. Um you know, I have always had this, these dreams to go to these amazing places, but I also always told myself that I had to wait to go with someone, whether that was a significant other, a friend, or a husband. I um, got to this point in my life where I was single and 26, and I felt like I was 
literally sitting back waiting for my life to begin and I just got so frustrated with myself that I kind of set myself free of those limitations and told myself that I needed to do it now regardless of who was going to be there with me and that I was my own best company. So so you're a fairly ambitious person. How do you think that uh, that your ambition motivated you to go on this trip? I think a huge part of ambition is having that little thought inside your head that says, yes, I can. Um, and I've been fairly well trained to say that to myself as I push myself throughout my career and through other athletic adventures and so once you kind of tell yourself that yes you can and then you have this big dream everything kind of just falls into place and you just go for it so for you that it was that notion inside of you says yes I can do this and that's what motivated you to follow through yeah I think as soon as I told myself that I, or I even allowed myself, I guess you could say, to say, yes, I can. It was just like, boom, all right, we're going. I'm doing this. So you got on a plane, so you packed, you got a, you got a, a, a service, a company. You got on the plane. You landed in Kathmandu. Tell us about Kathmandu. <laughs> oh, Kathmandu. Um, I, Kathmandu was nothing that I was prepared for. Um, was something that I wasn't prepared for, rather. I met someone along the way of my travels, and I told him that I was um, going to Kathmandu, and it was my first international trip ever. And he, quote-unquote, told me that I was jumping off the cultural deep end for my first international <laughs> trip. And, and I, I didn't know what I was in for, um, even when he had said that. So I get to Kathmandu, and the first thing I felt was just complete chaos. There's tons and tons of people around you. There's, like, they all have an agenda. No one really cares about, like, what you're doing. Everyone's just kind of in their own way, but they're all okay with that. The streets are crowded. Um, There's very few rules when it comes to driving. I mean, there's two lanes but in reality it's more like four lanes and you're driving next to cars, motorbikes and even giant farming tractors coming down the street and people are honking it's crazy. So it was kind of chaotic did you enjoy it or was it a little over the top? It was a lot for me. Um, I think if I had the chance to go back that I would have um, maybe embraced that a little bit more but Coming from the U.S., it was very anxiety-producing. They well, um, I mean, coming not just coming from the U.S., coming from a white girl, upper middle class, Denver. You are yeah. culture shocked over the top. Yeah, I mean, within minutes, I had thought that I maybe made a very large mistake that was very <laughs> expensive. Um, it, it's crazy. I mean, one of the things that sticks out to me about driving in Nepal is that there's people everywhere, different cars everywhere, and everyone is, there's like a honk every second, and in Nepal, the culture is to honk 
not because you're mad at someone like it is in the U.S., but to just be like, hey, I'm inches away from you. Please don't hit me as you're going in a diagonal direction. How funny, how funny. Okay, so you got out of Kathmandu. At what point did you meet your guide in Sherpa? He, so my guide picked me up from the airport. Oh, that's um, good. And his name was? Uh, Diu. Diu? How do you spell it? D-E-U. Diu. Diu. Okay, do. Yeah, you had to like put a little emphasis behind it. Do. Do, yeah. So he picked you up from the airport and what? Uh, I was going to say I was just really thankful for that because um, there was so much going on at the airport that all I had to do was look for that sign and be lying for it. Cool. Good, good, good. So you got there, you landed, you got a hotel. How long did you stay in the hotel before you headed out? Uh, Let's see. I think it ended up being two nights. Um, The first full day there was just a day of sightseeing, and then the second night we got up at like 3 in the morning to try to catch our flight out. And that was a trip, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you flew out. Where did you land? I'm actually blanking on the name right now, hilariously. That's no problem. No worries, no worries. Uh, From what I remember, you had terrible weather. In the beginning of the trek, we did, yes. Tell us about the weather. The first, I think, was like three days, um, other than the the day of sightseeing in Kathmandu. So, like, when I first started trekking, it was just raining almost nonstop. Were you cold? Um, it was a mixture of being really hot and then really, really cold once the sweat on me started cooling down. But the, uh, I mean, it just continued to rain throughout those first several days, correct? Yeah. And you did the weather get you down? Did it disappoint you? Absolutely. I think you even know that it did because I remember getting on my phone saying, I'm in Nepal. I've been trekking for three days. I am cold, wet, tired, and I haven't seen a single Himalaya. You're right. Not a, not a single mountain. So, yeah, I was definitely having a hard time with it. What kept you motivated? Um, after a while, I had realized that I had signed up for this myself, and I was three days into an 18-day trek. And I had to get through it, regardless of the weather. Like, there's no turning back. So I developed a mantra called um, lean into it. And I would repeat that to myself um, when I started having some negative thoughts. And instead, I kind of just put that into the mountain and kept on trekking and told myself that there was most likely going to be a sunny day. So I love that uh, lean into it. What do you think that meant for you, lean into it? What did it mean? Um, I think it was just trying to convince myself to embrace what was in front of me. Um, It wasn't what I was expected, and it was really hard, but I was there, and I could still learn something from it, and it was still beautiful. Don't get me wrong. So... um, trying to accept what was front of, in front of me and literally lean into it, lean into the mountain, lean into the pain, lean into the cold, accept it, embrace it, love it, and 
keep moving forward. So I love that. So instead of flee from it, you leaned into it. That's yeah. a that's a great insight, I think, for people when it comes to ambition, is that you have to lean into whatever's in front of you. You're never going to accomplish anything if you fall away, fall back. You got to lean into it. I'm going to remember that mantra. I think uh, hopefully everybody's listening will hang on to that as well. So nights you went to tea houses. Um, tell us about a tea house. Every night you were in a different tea house. What's a tea house? So the tea houses are what the villages have created um, to host uh, trekkers, and um, they are they vary. Uh, the ones lower in elevation are really nice and like these huts with heat, not like they're like wood stove heat. Um, they have beds and like little dormitory style beds, basically made of plywood. There's no insulation or anything. It's very cold. Um, and then there's one giant room where everyone eats their meals together and that's where the fireplace is. How, what do they what do they use to heat? They don't have wood up there at the high elevation. What do they use? They use poop. Not poop. human poop. <laughs> not human <laughs> poop. poop. They use poop, but not human poop. What kind of poop do they use? Uh, I think they use whatever they can get. They're yaks, or yaks, yaks and um, uh, horses and all the things they can get. They actually dry it out in the sun to use for... Um, Heat. Cool. Well, you know, you said you were a vegetarian on the trip. Why? The, um, their meat practices are very poor. They, uh, the meat has to travel from um, lower elevations to higher elevations because these animals can't necessarily survive uh, in mass quantities at high elevations. So they travel from down below up. And they're baking in the sun. This raw meat bakes in the sun all day. And flies are all around it. So it develops a lot of bacteria that uh, westernized guts are not used to and can make you very sick. So you were just a strict vegetarian on the whole trip? I was, yeah. Yeah. So you climbed um, back into the backcountry for... Uh, several days before you turned around. So you ended up getting how how far back into the backcountry did you, were you? Very far. It was actually a whole loop. Um, what was the name of that loop, by the way? It's called the High... So there's a couple of names for it. They called it the High Passes Trek, or the, it's called the Three Passes Loop. Um, it's basically a connection from the Everest Base Camp Trek, and it explains beyond that by several days. Cool. What was your elevation? The highest elevation I got to was, I believe, 18,000 feet. What was, I mean, you and I have hiked several 14ers before. What was it like to be up at 18,000 feet? It's like an outer body experience, in all honesty. You just, you have... I don't know. We took, um, I don't know if anyone here knows what a pulse oximeter is, but it hooks up to your finger and it tells you what your heart rate and oxygen are. Normal oxygen is 90% or above, and normal heart rates are in the 60 to 70 to 80 range. My heart rate was like 120 to 130 
Wow. And my oxygen was about 82%. Wow. So yeah. your heart and lungs were really working. That's amazing. I didn't know that. They work, yeah, they work really hard. And um, it's, every step is a major effort. And that's why they take a long time to do this trek because you have to let your body acclimate to each change in elevation. So throughout the trek, we would have things called acclimation days where, like when we got to 14,000 feet, we had an acclimation day where you actually just spend a whole day at that elevation trying to allow your body to adjust. Cool. So, were there Nepalese villages all the way on this trip, even in the way back? Yes, the whole way. Tell us about the Nepalese people. I mean, how do they live in these villages? I mean, this is a something that really fascinated me when we were talking about it when you got home. Tell us about the Nepalese people. How do they live? Where do they get their supplies? Where do they get their food? How do they build things? Tell us, just kind of go from a riff on that as far as the, the people. Tell us about the people. I love the people. I think there's a huge difference between the Nepalese people that live in Kathmandu and the Nepalese people that live in these high up, far away villages. Um, I connected more with the people in the high up, far away villages because they have to rely solely on what's around them for life. They have to live off their land. They also live off of tourists coming through. Even my guide would tell you that before trekking to Nepal was popular, these villages were far, far smaller and not nearly as nice. So the more popular it gets, the nicer these villages got and the more attention they got, um, the more resources they got. So it's been like a mutually beneficial relationship for them. They rely solely on porters and animals to transport goods from the lower elevations to the higher elevations. So um, along the trail, there's trekkers, and then there's animals and humans carrying 60 pounds or more. Like I even saw a porter carrying a fold, two folded tables on his back up at 16,000, 17,000 feet. Well, do they, uh, does that where all their food comes from? Most of it. And once you get to the high, high elevations, there's not much like vegetation that they can, um, I guess their soil isn't good. So they have to rely on the lower elevations to bring up more resources to them. What about medical issues? What happens if they get sick, fall, break an arm, leg, whatever? Oh, boy, is that a problem. Um, I don't know if the porters or if the villagers can take a medevac flight. I know that was available to the tourists, but there are very few hospitals. There are some medical tents. In fact, I went and actually had a discussion with one of the medics in a place called Gokio, and Basically, if you have a major issue, you are in big trouble. If a trekker or villager has a heart attack, for example, um, there is nothing we can do to help. Wow. Wow. What do you think that uh, brings meaning and joy to the uh, Nepalese people out there in the backcountry? Where do they find meaning and joy? 
It's a really good question and something that I thought about a lot because most of their day is spent track like trekking resources to and from villages or trying to maintain their tea house. Um, I think they get a lot of joy out of their family themselves um, and providing for tourists. I know that brings a lot of joy. And I always questioned whether they were actually happy or not, but I came to the conclusion that they were because a lot of the times on the, the trails, these porters would go in groups and they would all have blaring music and be laughing and dancing and in the midst of a break on the trail. And they never seemed to really care that they were carrying 120 pounds on their back. Wow. A massive trail. Wow. Okay, that's cool. So the weather clears, obviously. The weather clears, and you get to see some great views. What are some of your favorite views? The highlight of my trip in itself is actually related to all of this. Um, I've been hiking for several days, and it was just rain, rain, rain. And I remember the first day, it was actually a morning of no rain. And I looked out my window and I realized that the sun was actually potentially out. So I hurried and got dressed and I ran outside and I just started crying because I was surrounded 360 degrees of these massive Himalayan mountains. And that was my favorite day because that was also the day that I was graced with the presence of the mountain Amadabalam, which came to be my favorite mountain of the entire trek. So why was it your favorite mountain? You know, I don't know. It's beautiful, first of all. Um, second of all, Amadabalam, you can actually find almost, or see, I should say, anywhere along the trek. But the mountain also means mother and daughter, and that had, like, an emotional significance for me because it made me think of family and how supportive not only my mom, but my dad was. Amen, brother. Trip. <laughs> and I don't know. It, it was just a, such a significant mountain for me. Cool. Did, were there other highlights that stuck out for you? Yeah. there. I mean, there were so many when I think about it. Um, let's see. I think that one of the biggest ones was reaching this place called Gokio. It was a village. And Gokio is the first village that I was drawn to when I was researching and looking for pictures and trying to figure out what trek I wanted to do. And I landed on this village and I was just like, I have to go here. And I found a trek that circled through Gokio. And once I got there, I was just blown away because it was the one thing that reminded me that my dreams had come to fruition, and I was there. Like, I did it. Cool. Good. What were some major challenges you had to overcome besides the weather? I had some challenges with my guide, ironically. Um, He was not too thrilled that I was a solo woman traveler or so he made it seem Um, he would always tell me that he would never let his daughter do something like what I was doing 
and he really wasn't happy whenever I was hiking faster than him or in front of him, and he wasn't really open to my input, kind of controlling, and I kind of had to learn how to balance our relationship because I was going to be with him for 21 days, which is a long time to be with someone day in and day out, and I also relied on him for my safety. So I had to learn how to push my own self to be strong and independent, but also step back and listen to his guidance and um, let him show me the way. Okay, that's good. So the trip comes to an end, and you sit back and you reflect upon the trip. How did this trip define who you are? Oh, that's another really good question. <laughs> you know, I think if anything, it's just, it was just a confirmation trip for me. Like, I am a strong, confident, independent woman. woman. If I can do something like this, uh, then I can probably do anything else. And it doesn't matter if I have a boyfriend or if I have a friend that wants to do it with me it matters if I want to do it and if that's on my list of things to do I need to do it how did this um, I'm sorry I interrupted go ahead oh it's okay go ahead so how did the trip affirm or form your ambition in life I think it just it fueled it. It fired it. You know, I as soon as I was done with it, I was like, okay, well, what's next? And what can I do to push myself more next time? Or what other things really matter to me? You know, it really made me think about that because I felt like I had neglected that part of myself for so long. And this trip made me realize that I shouldn't be neglecting that regardless of what's around me and that all of those items matter. Cool. Good, good. Okay, so now you're back in your life at Denver. Um, you readjusted. You are back working as a doctor of physical therapy at St. Anthony's Hospital. How do you use these life lessons, leaning into it? I still keep on coming back to that one, leaning into it. I love it. How do you use these life lessons and this sense of ambition to motivate people to get better at St. Anthony's as a physical therapist? Well, how do you take all these lessons learned and your own sense of ambition and motivation, how do you instill that in the, in the people you're working with in the hospital? Well, I, I think I can answer this in two ways. But with leaning into it, um, I think that especially applies right now. We are all in unprecedented times. The hospital is in constant chaos, and it's stressful to go to work. But reminding myself to lean into it just encourages myself to embrace it and take in these changes and also confront COVID with full force. Um, I've been having to work on the COVID units. I volunteered to work on the COVID units, I should say. And that's what I've been telling myself is to lean into it, embrace it, help take care of these patients regardless of how sick or how sick it could make me. What did you, what did you volunteer to do that? Why? Yeah. 
because I wanted to help. And there were a lot of people that either were unable to help because they were immunocompromised or because they were truly scared, which is completely reasonable. I felt like I was, I felt like I'm strong enough and brave enough and have the skill set to volunteer myself to help them. Cool. Cool. Okay, so now you have a patient that you've got to motivate to get better. How do you motivate them? What do you think motivates people to get better? How do you how do you motivate people? That's a really good question. I I think there's two types of people. So if you're talking about the people that just have the natural drive and ambition, that's easy. Um, other people are a lot more challenging. One thing that physical therapists and occupational therapists try to do is play into people's passions. We try to figure out who they are, what they're interested in, and we try to use that to bring life out of them and encourage them to get out of bed. Also, at times, you know, we are meeting these people in their darkest days, darkest hours. They are so injured, hurt, or sick. They can't even imagine what it's like to get out of bed. So that voice in their head saying, yes, I can, is gone. And it's easy for me to come in or a therapist to come in and be the first one to say, yes, you can. So once again, that voice is so important. And if you don't have it, sometimes you need someone else there to say it for you and show the way. So, so I think therapists do that a lot. So I think that's interesting. It goes all the way back to when you started the trip, you had to tell yourself, yes, you can do this. Yes, I can do this. Yes, this my ambition will drive me forward. So that same small voice how you started the interview, you talked about that small voice. It's that same small voice that you got to spark inside of somebody else to get them going, to believe that, yes, they can do this. That's how I see it. I always try to put myself in my patient's shoes, and I'm in the ICU, and they've just had a massive motor vehicle accident, and every bone is broken, and every organ is injured, and I would be paralyzed, too. I would be so afraid to get out of bed or think that I potentially never could, and yet in walks the therapist that says, actually, yes, we can. Let me show you how. Uh Uh-huh. That's cool. And a lot of people cling on to that, and they need that. You know, they need to be told, yes, you can. Do you think that they borrow from your ambition, that your ambition, your motivation, they have to hang on to that if they don't feel it in themselves? I think they have to, or else nothing gets accomplished. So does this mean that you have to keep your own ambition and motivation at a high level? Oh, yeah, that's why I'm so exhausted at the end of the day. Because you go in, you have to be pretty pumped up for your work, and then by the end of the day, it's taking it all out of you? Yeah, exactly. Cool. That's why I'm proud of you, and I'm proud of the work that you do, because you do bring your sense of ambition. So let's talk a little about the COVID-19. We're almost out of time here, but I want to spend a few times talking about it. Um, What do you think are the lessons working at a hospital on a COVID unit? What do you think are the lessons that we're learning or that we should learn from your perspective as a relatively young 
doctor physical therapy in an acute hospital working on the floor. What are some lessons we should learn from it? I think one of the biggest lessons that we should learn is probably how to be a little bit more selfless, especially as a young, healthy, fit person um, in or out of a hospital. It's so easy to get caught up in, I'm going to be okay if I get this, but we need to take the second step to say, but I can give it to someone else who would not be okay. And that's what we're seeing. Like, that's what I see every day is the result of someone who gave it to someone who is not okay. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard thing to see. Um, it's not the patient's fault that they're sick. No one wants to be sick with this. And yet we are having tons and tons getting infected. And I think it's humbling and it makes me think outside of myself more. And I wish we would do that as a whole more. And I think we've done a good job in general, especially in Colorado, of taking, you know, the governor's um, stay-at-home orders seriously, but there are a lot of people who don't because they think they're going to be okay, and it doesn't matter if they think they're going to be okay, they should want to protect the people who aren't going to be, and that's who I see. And so you think we ought, the lesson is to be a little bit more selfless in this and thinking about yeah. other people? Okay, that's good. That's so. a profound lesson. That's a profound lesson. Okay, so what's next for you? What is your ambition going to take you? What are you going to do next that's going to worry the old man this time? Well, I think a lot of the plans have been put on hold. Thank you. I was supposed to go trek to Machu Picchu via the Salkante Trail um, in Peru. But Great. in August. But that is no longer happening, so I think we're going to have to settle for... Um, another trip in the U.S. But you're a big skier, snowboarder. You went snowboarding in Canada a couple times this winter. So you snowboard almost every weekend. So you're doing enough as it is to keep the old man busy. That's good. Yeah. In fact, we actually just got done uh, snowboarding off of Green Mountain today because we missed the snow so much. That's funny. Did you hike up there and snowboard down? Yeah, that's what we did right before this, is we hiked up and snowboarded down. <laughs> how funny, how funny. Well, Kelsey, any final thoughts for us today? No, I'm just so thankful that you thought to talk to me, and I appreciate it. It's made me very nostalgic, and I'm ready to get back out there. Cool. Well, Kelsey, I love you. I know that the people who are listening to this podcast will uh, enjoy this, so thank you so much for being on. And everybody, thank you for joining us on the podcast today, uh, thinking about ambition and what it means to have ambition and positive ambition. I want you to constantly think about what is your trek to Nepal going to be like? What is your Nepal? Maybe your Nepal is actually a real trip, but maybe your your Nepal is dealing with some type of disability or some type of pain. I want you to take Kelsey's advice to lean into it. I'm going to take that with me and remind people everywhere I go to lean into it. I think that's fantastic. All right, everybody. Thank you. Bless you. We'll see you next time on the Steve Poos Benson Podcast.